Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. And my guest in this podcast is the award-winning playwright Lewis Treston. With his work, Hubris and Humiliation, it's on at the Sydney Theatre Company until the 4th of March at the moment. It's getting five-star reviews, uh, and he, as I said, is an award-winning playwright. In this Sydney World Pride and Prejudice production, Jane Austen's drawing rooms and country estates are switched out for the dizzying dance floors and leafy avenues of post-plebiscite Sydney. Well, that's what it says online. Lewis is a former Sydney Theatre Company Patrick White Award winner. And this production, presented in association with Sydney World Pride, is directed by Dean Bryant. And think of Fun Home, uh, previous production. And this modern homage to the celebrated 19th century English novelist, which has had a development at Sydney Theatre Company as part of the Rough Draft program in 2021 and won the 2021 Australian Theatre Festival New Play Award in New York, is a high camp exploration of love, family and commitment topped off with a twist of Regency period charm. Welcome, Lewis Tristan. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So before we get into this, like, sounds like such a fun romp. Um, what brought you to, th- when did you find theatre first, in the first place? Like, what was your kind of, what drew you to theatre? It's sort of funny. I, my mum signed me up for a drama class when I was about seven because I was having literacy problems. Uh, so the fact oh. that I'm a playwright is sort of an <laughs> unlikely um, overcompensation on my behalf, probably. <laughs> but... Um, you know, so I was always doing drama classes as a kid and I enjoyed um, performing back in the day. Uh, but I kind of came to playwriting relatively late. Like I would do short plays in school and stuff, but mostly that was just an excuse to be funny in front of people. Um, and then it probably wasn't until I was around 21, 22 that I attempted to write um, a first play and, and, you know, it wasn't received too badly. and. You know, then I got into NIDA and, and then it, yeah, then things started to kick off after that. Um, yeah. But it sort of just happened quite um, organically, really. Like, I, I, yeah, always interested in drama, but then, um, the, you know, I mean, you sort of get encouraged uh, into the direction you're supposed to go in and I'm much happier writing than being in front of people now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It's, it's, I don't know if it's surprising. It's a, it is sort of surprising, but makes complete sense that a lot of people that are drawn to theatre, you know, might be shy or might have come from a broken background and all of this sort of vulnerabilities, I suppose, because theatre is so vulnerable. It's like it says it's representing life. So um, I guess there's a lot of skills that come from it that you use every day, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it's an intensely... Um exposing experience uh especially yeah. those uh, you know in the rehearsal room as well you know because you, you offer up this thing to this cast of very um creative and clever and smart people like they're all everyone who works in theater has a great mind um and you know i mean that's that's scary for a number of reasons you know i mean you want you want them to feel assured and confident in what they're doing 
and that you're not setting them up for failure with a bad script or something like that. But then also you're sort of revealing yourself, you're, you're, you're revealing what your passions and concerns and your intellect is um, obviously somehow obsessed with. Um, and, you know, that's, that's scary, you know what I mean? Like, so, but, you know, I think that's also... Because I, I, I get very anxious about that type of stuff. <laughs> but then about a year ago, I, I just had this light bulb moment. I'm like, maybe I'm addicted to the fear. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's why I do it. Like some people <laughs> jump out of a plane. I just, I, I, um, I expose myself publicly in some sort of <laughs> incredibly embarrassing way. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, so it's, it's an interesting thing to try and make sense of. Mm. So while you didn't write a play till you, like, you know, in your 20s, what, I was just reading the reviews and you got getting five-star reviews, as I mentioned, and it said that you did researching in the kind of meaning of camp. Is that? Yes. What? So tell me a bit about that. Uh, some context. I was, yeah, I, I, I'd moved back to Queensland from Sydney uh, and my career wasn't going great and I was working 20 hours a week at a um, retail store. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, like after, this is after I won the Patrick White Award. So I, there was this sense I had promised, which was quickly dwindling. <laughs> and, yeah, so then I, I don't know, I just, I, I just thought I should, you know, I mean, if you can do a research degree and you get the scholarship, then I could quit my retail job and um, <laughs> try try and become something uh, and yeah so that was kind of the, but the, the 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 whole idea of camp came to me because yeah. a lot of people had feedback to me and like conversationally that they, they enjoyed the camp quality of my work which is a term I kind of understood or I had some sense of what it meant but then um, yeah. and then the more you research and look into it you it just begins to feel like this odd term that everyone's trying to grapple and make sense of but ultimately uh, it's hard to sort of pin down which I felt you know I mean which on one time level I found kind of very frustrating but I often feel drawn to things like that that can't quite be defined but you know I mean it was it was very zeitgeisty like the first semester I was studying there then the Met Gala's theme was camp I'm like oh me and Anna Winter we are on the same page uh, <laughs> um Brilliant. <laughs> and then and then it went from there, and then somehow I ended up writing this play. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What? But you know, what is the meaning of camp? Oh, that's. I know you said it's like hard to define, so I'm kind of challenging you on that. In a way, <laughs> but what did you find out then? What did I find out? Um, I I think it's a lens. I mean, uh, fundamentally, I think you can read the camp into things. So if you want to oh. look for sort of the theatricality, the sense of incongruity. Um, the sort of um, gender or sexual, you know, I mean, problematic term, but inversion or difference, I guess the queerness would be the word that people use now. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's something by which you can read and exaggerate, which already exists in current material. So the key position I sort of took within my research, what I sort of focused on was how um, camp kind of exists within genres or within existing art product. Um, and it can be um, tapped into and exaggerated and built upon. So that's sort of what I did with Jane Austen. Rather than adapting a single text, I kind of looked at her body of work uh, and then tried to identify what I found sort of camp or stylized or 
uh, slightly silly within it and kind of exaggerated that out more fully. But I, again, I don't think there can be one definition of camp, but that's sort of uh, where my research took me. Okay. So when did the idea of this, was it during that research that you were investigating Jane? It's, oh. I think I first pitched this idea to a company in 2015 or 2016. Okay. I had it a long time yeah. ago. But I think it's like, it goes all the way back into childhood because, you know, I mean, I, we, <laughs> we, we had um, the Pride and Prejudice VHS uh, BBC tapes when I was a kid. Mm. So on sick days, you'd sort of watch them. <laughs> and then my mum <laughs> was, it became a family thing. We'd all put Pride and Prejudice on or Sense and Sensibility or something like that. Or Clueless and then Bridget Jones' yeah. Diary, all these various interpretations of Austen. Um, so, I, you know, it goes way back then. Like, uh, I think it's been germinating across a lifetime. Um, but I don't know. Like, the, the, the first piece of the puzzle was, oh, it'd be quite funny if, um, you know, I mean, a sort of unassuming type of person was sort of forced to move to Sydney to marry a rich man to save his family from ruin, which is a very Austinian setup. Uh, and yeah. I don't know when I had that idea. I, I think it just, okay. I just cropped up one day. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And I, I, I found it funny. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, you just continue to build upon it from there. Okay. So uh, you had this first showing and workshop in the rough draft. What was that beginning like? And where have we come now? Are you looking at those sort of tropes within Jane Austen, you know, like you say, marriage or morals of the time or relationships, those sort of things. Like, where did you start? You had that idea of the, the you know, coming from Queensland to marry, but yeah. It's, it's hard because to describe, because often starts are very messy. You know, I, I like I, I mentioned, I had this sort of inciting incident, but then you have a sense, oh, there should probably be a ballroom scene, which is, closely associated with Austin. There needs to be a Darcy figure because if I go to a Pride and Prejudice version of something, I wanna see Mr. Darcy. You've gotta hold the kiss till the end. There's certain tropes that you don't necessarily want to subvert and then other tropes that um, you can have fun subverting. So obviously the fact that it's a queer story um, is a sort of subversion, but, and it's very, you know, I mean, like, it, and I'm, I'm glad so many people are enjoying the queerness of it and everything like that. But at the same time, I, I just sort of treated it like a, like a love story, basically. And what I found, and I, I continue to find amazing about Jane Austen, um, and it feels silly to compare, but what I was really sort of inspired by was her sort of pragmatism and her deep shrewdness and her thoughtfulness. Um, and I, I felt it was very contemporary, but also slightly off the times as well, because at, the, at this point in time, there's all sorts of ideals, like of the perfect relationship or how, uh, how, to, how to be in a relationship without compromise and stuff like that. But she was all about thoughtful compromise and understanding your own limitations and the limitations of others. She was, of course, deeply oppressed by capitalism because as a woman, she couldn't work, she couldn't make her own income and everything like that. Um, she was sort of blocked out from participating in society as a man would in that time. Um, but in saying that, her novels are sort of filled with life, they're filled with humour, and they're, they're also filled with the mindset of someone who's working out how to survive and how to, what would you say, 
it, it sounds awful to say make the most of, but she was, she was deeply pragmatic. She was like, well, this is the circumstances that we live in and how am I going to um, make that work for me? And I found that deeply inspiring because, you know, I mean, that's how we actually all live. You know, you know what I mean? Like I, as an artist, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I could talk a lot about late capitalism. I could talk about neoliberalism and all of these things are conditions that we live under. But then I'm also deeply for, for think, thinking, I'm deeply obsessed with ideas of like, well, actually, what do you do today about any of these things? You know what I mean? How do you get through the day? How do you set up your life um, to sort of, uh, you know, to, to meet your dreams and try and find some kind of happiness? Um, and then, and I, I thought Jane Austen just does that better than anyone. I think she was incredibly, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, I, mean I, I could like talk praise about Jane Austen all day, I, but it, it was, she was one of those um, writers that the more I read, the more I sort of just became in awe of. She got better, <laughs> you know what I mean? The more I thought about it, the, the more amazed I was. Ah, so you said that the, you know, she was writing within a world that has limitations. What are the limitations today? Do we have limitations therefore now? And what are they for these characters? Um, well, well the, the, there's a class dimension to the play where, um, yeah, I mean, the characters are sort of like stuck within a sort of, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're heading towards poverty, the actual family within the play. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's an uncomfortable comparison because the sort of misogyny that Jane Austen's female characters face is not the same as the sort of, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the central male character within that play that I've written. However, yeah, I mean, you're sort of building upon that, but I think there's all sorts of, I'm, I'm falling into generalities here, but yeah, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I mean, I, everyone feels this sense of precariousness about the culture at the moment. And then, you know, I mean, with cost of living and everything like that. I, and yeah, I mean, also this sort of essential fact that, you know, I mean, to buy a home or something, you, you need to be in a relationship, essentially. You need to have some kind of partnership, and let, you know, especially if you're not making tons of money. And, yeah, that was sort of one of my pitch points. I'm like, you know, I mean, life's sort of a two-player game, and, you know, I mean, on one level, if you want to pragmatically enter the housing market, you sort of need to find a partner. Um, and, and all those sorts of concerns were sort of orbiting in my mind, I guess. Okay. But not limitations necessarily to do with, not gender, but um, uh, being a gay man looking for a husband. Well, that's sort of it because um, around the time I was dreaming up the play, um, marriage equality was passed and everything like that. And I mm. sort of entered into it. I thought I was going to write a more cynical play. I thought, you know what I mean? I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, like gay marriage, it's just about buying a house and this or that. But then you, you eventually yeah. sort of, you know, one of the jokes I had, it never found its way into the play, but I was like, Polyamory is uh -huh. the only way forward if you want to buy a house in Sydney. But, <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, I mean, I, I, I reflected upon my own bourgeois mediocre tastes yeah. and I was like, well, actually, I do want a home and I, I do want um, a comfortable life and I do want to, you know, what I mean, and is that necessarily such yeah. a bad thing? And I think within the values of queerness, at, at times it can feel... Um, like you feel guilty about that or you feel like you're selling out for some reason. Whereas I'm like, well, you know, I think a lot of people actually live their lives that way. Um, so the, I, I guess what, what's oddly subversive about it is I, I tried to be authentic and I tried to be unpretentious about um, uh, what, I, what I want out of life or, or you know, I mean, what, what, mm -hmm. I, what I 
that that central character who I Mansion. guess on one level I'm putting my own spin on or putting <laughs> yes. myself into I guess what those dreams are but then within the play there is um a broader diversity of what other people like I'm, I'm not suggesting that people should yeah. all run out and get married and buy their own homes if they don't want to do that I mean don't do that that if that's not for you that's fine and I, I think the play makes that point um but yeah I guess I've talked myself into a circle yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no well <laughs> tell me about like you know the oh I imagine the Jane Austen characters Pride and Prejudice for example the, the characters are driven by their pride or their prejudice is sort of the inherent thing. So tell me about the hubris and humiliation aspect of these characters. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for observing that because they call that kind of title trope the lessons of improvement. So for the, for me, it's, it's less sexy on the marketing content, but it's much more like sense and sensibility because within hubris and humiliation, you've got the more... I guess the sensible brother character and then the more sort of uh, romantic and um, impassioned and lively sister character, which I, mirrors sense and sensibility quite strongly. But in terms of, to answer your actual question, the hubris and humiliation, I, I will, I'll be totally honest. I knew I wanted a yes. lesson of improvement title and I just went through a list of virtues and vices. <laughs> like, so I was like, oh, you know I mean? I went through a, a, B, and then I eventually got to H, I was like, oh, hubris is good. Um, and then I, I initially had humility. And then um, a friend of mine said humiliation is funnier. And I was like, well, you're right. <laughs> um, yeah. But then it, it ended up shaping the story itself. So I guess there is a degree of hubris about someone going to Sydney with the intention of marrying rich. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is on one level yeah. a slightly overconfident <laughs> thing to do. Um, and I was interested, what I, what it was, this was a discovery as I wrote it, um, because, you know, I mean, uh, like so many people, I don't like feeling humiliated. I don't like feeling embarrassed, yeah. but that's, that's where life is. You know, that's where you learn. Um, and I wanted to sort of find a way to sort of give value to those moments where we feel most, um, exposed and embarrassed and like kind of just, you know, when you want to kind of like cringe and crawl up and just sort of disappear. Um, I wanted to sort of, I guess, create a play which sort of advocates for the essential um, importance of those moments, you know? Like, because that's actually where you learn who you are. You know, that's where you end up showing people who you are. Uh, and, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's uncomfortable to say that, but you know, it's not uncomfortable to say that, but it's, it's such an old truth, but it's something I really believe. You really do have to um uh yeah. humiliate yourself <laughs> to discover who you are i think well indeed and also um in retrospect they are when you actually overcome them and learn from them they're the moments that are the most humorous oh yeah and uh, for you know in retrospect it's like oh i can't believe i did that <laughs> when you can laugh at it because i was going to ask you actually you know, and it's a, probably a bit like trying to define camp is like, how do you write humorously or comic comically? Uh, I, I wish I could answer that. Like I've, uh, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know how to yeah, say this, but I've, like, alwa I've always been funny. <laughs> but yeah. I, I've always been funny, but I, I almost don't think about it. Um, it's sort of really intuitive and it's uh, sometimes hard to, describe in a room or in a development 
to people, not, not how to do it, but just more my own process in discovering what's, what's amusing or, or, or funny about a situation. And it, the sort of slant that I guess I put on things, but I, it, it's kind of like one of those little boxes I don't entirely open because I don't full, you know, I mean, that's the thing. If you understand it too fully, it might go away, but I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I, I guess I've just been working on this shtick for 30 years. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm glad people are laughing, you know, because it, I, yeah, I mean, there, there's no hubris in this situation. Every before every performance, it doesn't even matter. I'm gonna see it in a week again because I'm back in Brisbane, but mm. my family's coming, and I'm still like, I know I'll be scared before I go in. I'm always scared that yeah. they won't laugh or something yeah. like that. <laughs> so, how have you taken the writing style? Is it kind of feeding over into the contemporary version of Austin? Like, what's the? How have you? Are we writing in today's voice, or are we taking? Tribes of Austin. This was an experiment that actually paid off, uh, but I, I, I thought about if I could like kind of combine Austin's like writing style to sort of Regency speak with, I guess, a sort of more contemporary lexicon and a slightly broad Australian Kath and Kim style of humour. Um, and I was like, oh, well, maybe these things can just operate side by side because I always think every play is its own imagined version of reality. And mm. I, I think sometimes... I'd like to see, when I go to the theatre, sometimes I'm like, well, let's test this. Let's see how unique and specific every universe can be that we put on stage. Um, so it was a bit, of a, a bit of a swing, but it turned out quite well that these kind of two different styles exist side by side. Um, and that was, yeah, so it, it doesn't quite make sense, but it'll make sense when you see it. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I kind of get it and I can kind of see this, you know, if you're talking about poverty and, and marriage today, but yet you're talking in this, you know, Regency it's called, you say, language, then there's I can sort of almost feel the humour in it um, coming out. So... <laughs> juxtaposition, I guess, juxtaposition. yeah. Juxtaposition, yeah, yeah. Um, so the other thing I noticed when I was, like looking around is that you studied philosophy as well so that's what they call a, a, a the research degree so it's sort of listed under um, a master of philosophy so it's like a step below a phd so it's sort of a degree that's fallen out of fashion a little bit but um yeah i basically i couldn't quite get into the phd straight away so they're like you should do an mphil and i was like great um but i'm doing a phd now but yeah so it's that's uh, basically what you call a research degree yeah they title it a master of philosophy yeah it just makes me think i mean uh you know at at first you think oh philosophy is so different but then theater is there is this sort of well maybe more sociology but the the times on our stages there are elements of philosophy kind of woven in right well absolutely and like yeah i mean anytime a character wants something you're writing about desire and and what what creates our desire, what we want, what we chase after, how we build a life, which is a deeply philosophical idea. Like people have been writing about desire um, in a philosophical context forever. So <laughs> it's yeah. fundamentally theatre. If a character wants something, um, you are engaging in a sort of philosophical discussion about what it means to want want, and, and why we want what we want. Um, mm. 
So yeah, like I, I, you know, and when I was studying at NIDA, Stephen Sewell, who was the teacher there at the time, he always um, encouraged us to engage in, you know, philosophical literature and um, kind of grapple with those big minds like Lacan and um, Zizek, I think we were looking at as well and some others. So, and that, I guess, instilled with me, within my own practice, a curiosity about grappling with <laughs> tricky ideas <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, finding kind of humour in them as well. Like, you, you, there's sort mm. of something funny about everything. Yeah. Depends on the view you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis Treston, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. No, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was Lewis Treston, the playwright from Sydney Theatre Company's Hubris and Humiliation, playing at the Rosalind Packer Theatre until the 4th of March. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>